Euralike, looking beyond borders for a pan-European perspective. Hello and welcome to Euralike. This is a new podcast we're doing about politics and culture in Europe. We're trying to, to get a broad overview in Europe and try to talk about the big topics and how they affect different parts. We're trying to look a bit past the, the, the national perspectives and try to get the big picture here. Um, we're a group of students from Aarhus University. Uh, we met here studying global journalism, so we all have a background in, in journalism and we are very interested in, in the global perspectives. So, um, yes, thank you for tuning in. This is a... A sort of a reboot of a podcast that uh, the last year uh, of journalism students here did, but we try to get a new spin on it and hope you stick around for a lot of episodes of your like. So um, when I say we, uh, I'm of course not talking about myself in in plural form. I'm joined by some classmates today. So how about we just tell the listeners a bit about ourselves and our interests. Uh, hi, I'm Meline. I'm 23 and I come from France and I tend to focus on refugees and women's stories. Hi, my name is Nana. I am 24 years old and I am from Denmark and I tend to st uh, focus on women's studies a lot and feminism, but also on the crisis and wars around the world. And my name is Niels. I'm originally from Germany. Um, I'm 27 years old and I'm very interested in, in social movements I uh, have a bit of a background in political science, so I'm very interested in looking at uh, the, the political stuff um, all over the world. We also have a fourth member um, who couldn't join us today, but who will be here from next week on. Hi, I am Arun uh, Bernard. I am 22 years old, and uh, before I studied literary and cultural analysis in Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands, where I'm also from. Today's topic that we picked out for this episode is going to be Eurocentrism. Um, this might be a term that's familiar to some of you, but maybe not all. But don't worry, we're going to go from the start. I just want to say real quick why I wanted to talk about this at the very first episode is because I wanted to sort of first orient ourselves uh, with this program as well, see where we are at right now and where we want to go. And I think one of the important steps for this is to basically take a look in the mirror and sort of understand your own perspective as well. So um, Nana is now going to explain the concept of, of Eurocentrism. Yeah. Um, and as you might have heard before, all the four of us have some kind of background within cultural studies. So when we first set out to do this episode, we ended up discussing whether Eurocentrism was something people outside of cultural studies would know. To find out, we went to the Royal Library in Aarhus to ask some people uh, if they knew what Eurocentrism is. Hello, I'm Anne, <laughs> and I'm studying uh, molecular biology, mm -hmm. and I'm 23 years old. Okay, so what do you think is Eurocentrism? <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time I hear this uh, word. Okay. But maybe it's uh, concerning something about Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe that um, to, I don't know, there's a lot of EU and London is not a part of Europe anymore. The EU, maybe it's something <laughs> about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's the fact that we focus on Europe. Yeah. So, just 
don't know, for example, in your curriculum, you would read more stuff by Europeans than okay. other people. Yeah. Or like when you see a map, Europe is always in the uh -huh. middle. Like it's obvious that it's the most important place. Yeah, okay. And so what do you think about this? Do you think it's good? Do you think it's bad? You don't know. <laughs> um, I really don't know. Um, um i'm i'm not that uh, concerned about with uh, the focus is on <laughs> europe or the whole world and uh. my name is morton heath and i'm uh, 34 years old and i'm a student of medicine eurocentrism no not really um so it's the it's a concept from the social sciences that sort of describes uh in, in discourse and in, like, in the intellectual sphere, focus on Europe uh, at the expense of other regions of the world. Mm -hmm. So, um, in, in media and in popular culture, for example, um, do you think that's something you can see in your life? Do you think that's something uh, that's a problem? I think that's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> I yeah. think it's um, I think it's a natural product of human like society. Mm -hmm. It's most societies, of course, will center around themselves because that's what's interesting for them and their lives and their whatever mm -hmm. is happening. But, um, of course, it can be an issue if you try to... Whenever one particular group of people try to say something about another group of people, they have to consider whether or not they're actually part of that group they want to say something about. And if they're not, then they, uh, we can have like a lot of issues. So, in the Eurocentrism perspective that would be whenever people in Europe try to say something about the rest of the world and not really knowing anything about it then Eurocentrism becomes an issue because you have to be able to detach yourself from your own centrism mm. and then try and understand something outside of Europe yeah. I think. My name is David Didio. I'm 24 uh, and I'm a journalist. And uh, do you know what the concept of Eurocentrism is? What Eurocentrism is? Eurocentrism, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I guess I know what, what that means. So in your words, what would it mean? Well, I think if you focus on Europe instead of what's out there, like America, Africa, other continents and societies. Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts on it? So uh, have you ever encountered it in the media? And Well, I think every news broadcast is Eurocentristic in a way because people want to know what's going on in their place, in their region and Europe is one of those like regions in the world so people want to know what's happening in Europe and not maybe in no, parts of Asia. Jensine mm -hmm. and uh, I'm cleaning at the Mets mm -hmm. and uh, 48. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, do you know what Eurocentrism is? What? Eurocentrism. No? No. Yeah. No. It's um, actually the, the a concept where uh, where you can explain with like how focused Europe is on itself. So that in media we only talk about Europe, we don't talk about Africa or Asia or stuff like that, or other pr um, parts of the world, uh, which means that sometimes we're blind for what is happening in other p parts of the world. Okay. Mm. Yeah. If you think about that, what, what would your thoughts about it be? Or... Yeah, I, I look at the media, but I think it's it. I'm not. Uh, it's it's. Uh, yeah, I'm most interested in Denmark. 
It seemed that people might have an idea when we explained to them what the term was. It was pretty obvious that it is not really a part of their everyday life. Therefore, we decided to kind of just start out by giving you guys uh, somewhat of a theoretical definition of the term. And we know that this sounds kind of heavy, but please bear with us for a few minutes. So full disclosure, defining Eurocentrism wasn't really just a walk in the park. Um, personally, I have casually thrown the term into conversations for the past three or four years. But when it came to actually defining it, I was at a loss. Because what is Eurocentrism really? I have my subjective ideas, but where does the term come from and what does it really mean? Eurocentrism is typically defined both in encyclopedias, I don't like that word, <laughs> and dictionaries as a focus on European culture or history to the extent where one is excluding the wider view of the world. Furthermore, it is implicitly regarding European culture as preeminent or superior to all other cultures. The first part sounds pretty straightforward, right? From that definition, it sounds like Eurocentrism is basically the same as ethnocentrism, which in general terms is the idea that it is a natural to give your own culture the most attention and place it in the center. This exists everywhere in the world, not just in Europe. For example, xenocentrism in China. So overall, the first part of the definition does not sound too bad, right? Maybe it actually kind of makes sense to put your own culture in the center. Yes, but the problem is the second part of the definition. Furthermore, it is implicitly regarding European culture as preeminent or superior to all other cultures. Here it becomes clear that Eurocentrism has moved on from the somewhat innocent stage to a pretty toxic and dangerous one. And it did so because it was the cultural ideology of the European colonists. During this time, Eurocentrism went from putting Europe and European thinking in the center to promoting the idea that European or Western culture is superior to all other cultures. And as if that was not bad enough, this idea of superiority was then used to justify the need for domination and colonization. In many ways, Eurocentrism represents the view that there is a white, progressive, civilized and modern part of the world, Europe and the West, and a black and indigenous uncivilized, underdeveloped, and barbarian part of the world. Everyone else. Therefore, a more correct definition of what Eurocentrism has developed into would be a worldview which implicitly or explicitly posits European history and values as normal and superior to others, thereby helping to produce and justify Europe's dominant position, both within the global capitalist world, but also within the cultural world system. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, I think it's that's a lot, um, but I think it's very interesting because, like you said, it's such an intuitive concept for, for a lot of people and f for myself as well, I think. <coughs> but this very in-depth analysis of it, it's just not too widespread, I feel. Like, you don't really talk about the definition of it a lot, but as soon as someone explains it to you, I think suddenly some examples will come to your mind, like where you can see this. Mm. And... I think you have this, at least I would think you have this um, div divide also because, of course, when you make reference to colonial times, it's so easy for everyone to say, yeah, of course, this was a Eurocentric ideology. And I think nobody would agree that you could see this exact pattern there. But then I think um, if you apply this uh, definition or this logic today, I think some people would suddenly be a bit more 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 cautious to use the term um just because i think it's very ingrained to us i think the one of the important words you used there was the word 
normal that we see what European history or European cultural aspects as as normal as the norm for us and everything else we can only see as as how they are different from from this norm um i think that's that's a very interesting aspect and sort of adding to this maybe we can talk a bit about um some more <coughs> practical examples to help us understand how this concept of eurocentrism that i mean to some of us still might seem a bit abstract at this point is actually felt in in everyday life or in culture today so nana has established very clearly that eurocentrism is not a new thing uh, but you could actually see some example of it in your everyday life i mean have you ever just looked at a map i'm guessing like all of you did and I hope so. in <laughs> and in most of them europe is right in the middle of it and it seems so natural but it isn't i mean the globe is a sphere And so there's no right, no left, no east, south, or west. Everything is organized from where we stand. And it is during a very long time. All the knowledge considered as valuable um, came from Europe. Mm -hmm. So all the maps just placed it right in the middle. Um, interestingly enough, I once saw uh, some maps that were designed by, by scholars of post-colonial studies that realigned the world maps so that south was on top of the map and north was on the bottom. And it's for, for me, it was in, immediately very strange to look at just because you're so unused to it. But then you start thinking about it. I mean, why is north at the top and south at the bottom, right? There's no natural thing that would dictate that. And if you turn it around like this, suddenly there's this huge continent of Africa on top of Europe instead of the other way around. I think it might be a very small and symbolic thing, but it really helps uh, rethink the in entire position of Europe in the world. But I think that's exactly what Eurocentrism is, that it's something that you take this much for granted and you just assume that it's true that the world looks like this, but it does not. And it's something that um, someone constructed one time and it's just something that we believe now and we don't question at all. And that's the very dangerous part of Eurocentrism, that it's such an ingrained part of our life, but we don't question it. As I'm going to develop, we learn to be Eurocentric from a very early age. Mm. I mean, when you're in class, when you're a kid, you just you only read literature from your own country. I mean, and it's okay to learn about your own culture. It's good. But like, it would also be very interesting for the kids to have different perspectives. Mm. I don't know, maybe stories from India or Africa. Then they could compare and say, like, there's different way to tell stories, to share their, your culture. Um, and then it goes on. Go to the um, when you go to high school and you look at history programs, you almost never talk about other countries. I mean, countries that are outside of Europe, or you only talk about them in their relation they have with Europe. Mm. So we find a very interesting article by someone named Antoon Debate. I'm sorry, I might be destroying the name. <laughs> He's from the Netherlands. We're going to put a link uh, on our website. Um, and he actually says these interesting things that we present the other continent's history as European history outside of Europe. I can also add to that because I study uh, history at university. And um, basically what we study was, I'm from Denmark, so we studied Denmark, um, Europe, and that's it. We And if we studied other countries, it was because they were colonized by European countries. Um, and I found that pretty 
amazing that you can actually do a university course um, and that I can be a bachelor in history and still only be taught about Europe and Denmark. And even when we talk about Europe, like we, which, which country are we talking about? It's mainly Germany, Spain, mm-hmm. France, Italy, like the big countries that have been there since the beginning. Yeah. But two years, two or three years ago, I was living in Spain and one of my roommates was Polish. And Poland is a country that actually totally disappeared from the map during a hundred years. And I had no idea. And I kind of felt ashamed mm-hmm. because it's part of Europe. It's very, very, very close from home. And I kind of think to, of myself as someone who was educated and it, interested in what is happening. And I had just no idea. I felt very bad. Yeah, same for me. Um, I mean, I'm from from Germany. Poland is one of our bigger neighbors, and it's amazing how little I actually learned about it in in high school history class. And it's always been one of my favorite classes, so I really paid attention. If there had been anything on Poland, I would have noticed, (laughs) I think, but nothing at all, basically. So, yeah, and then what I think is even more dangerous is that when you go to university, so you made a choice to study further, um... And university is made to have different perspectives, learn about many different things, so you can kind of make up your own opinion on the subject you choose to study. And then you look at your curriculum, and doesn't matter what you're studying, but most of the texts are from European and North American mm-hmm. uh, people. There also happen to be old white men, but I mean that's another issue that maybe we're going to talk about later. Uh, and I mean. Studying should be confronting different perspective. And we only, I mean, if you only have writers from the same background, then you only get like a very incomplete perspective of the word. Mm-hmm. And then we go out and whatever profession we choose to do, and we can just keep going with this. So, yeah, so we have a very incomplete uh, perspective of the words. And this keeps going on when we're done with school. Because just turn on your TV, open a newspaper, um, listen to the radio. What are we talking about? We're talking about Europe. Mm-hmm. And, it, I mean, it's normal. We're in Europe. Of course, we're interested in what's happening. I mean, we're doing a podcast on yeah, Europe right yeah. now. But that's also always the excuse. Like, you would Ex- be more interested in what's close to you. Is that really true, though? Exactly. And then you're like... I. I think also like journalists also have to think about what they're doing mm-hmm. because they think like it's like if people were stupid, too stupid to understand something, like we always use this excuse like people can't relate or it would be too complicated because we don't know enough about it and then we need to explain everything and it would, it would be too long. But I mean, if since the beginning, since school, we were talking about it, we wouldn't need to create this big mm-hmm. background to give every little piece of information. Um I mean, and when we talk of countries outside of Europe, it's because we have a specific interest interest in what's happening there. Like we're going to talk about the US, the US and China because they're like those superpowers, mm-hmm. and every decision they make, it's going to have an impact on our foreign or um, domestic politics. And then we talk about the Middle East because the conflicts there have a direct impact on the price of the gas that we put in our cars. So we care about this. But I mean, what about Africa? What about South America? would only talk about them as like big tragedy where mm-hmm. uh, it's undeveloped, they don't have democracy, but that's not true. There's There are so many things going on and amazing projects about it. And we just don't mention them. Mm. And I mean, um, even the big tragedies, uh, they are sort of 
less important for a lot of people than small tragedies happening next door, so to speak. I mean, um, it might be a bit anecdotal and sort of around the corner, but in one of our lectures in a journalism class, I remember one of our classmates saying that um, in the the old school journalism <coughs> mindset, there was a very cynical approach to this, basically, where people said, okay, but if a dozen people die in the Middle East, that's not as big as a story as one person dying in the town over, so to speak. And mm. um, That's true. I mean, yeah, especially with news, it goes back a bit to like what affects your daily life more, I guess, but uh, it's still very cynical. I mean, it's just yeah. not an excuse not to talk about it. Like you can talk about the guy who died in your city and you can also talk about what's happening there. And I mean, people can pick their own um, perspective, like they can read about whatever they want. And it's not just talking about it at all, but also how you talk about it. And I mean, how much of a national tragedy yeah. you make about it, basically, right? But I also think that actually um, this idea of um, it meaning more to you if people or if a person uh, in the city just over dies is maybe something that's left from a less globalized world where now we might be even more um, invested in countries that are further away from us. For example, if you've been studying them, if you've been traveling there, if you've been there for a really long time, um, you might be more invested there in, for example, I am in Sweden, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that's just a myth that continues to be there in journalism, that we are more interested in what's close to us. I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. I mean, I think it's... At this point, it's no secret that one of the problems that journalism has is that change always takes a long time to actually be implemented. But just just by the way it works, you got conventions that just determine the entire way that news is produced and reproduced. And even if there's if people consciously know, okay, this might not be how, be how things work or things are perceived anymore, it just takes a lot of time to actually apply this practically mm -hmm. and change the way we report news, I guess. For the first episode, we thought it might be a good idea to take a step, take a step back and try to, to ground us a bit and look at the bigger picture. What are we going to talk about when we say we're talking about Europe? I mean, this sounds like a stupid question, obviously, because everyone knows what Europe is, I guess, or everyone thinks they know what Europe is. But um, I think it might be good to, to reconsider it for a second because um, there is this idea that we have a... A wide consensus on on what Europe is. I think for more than a century now, people sort of agreed on this geographical definition. Europe is this landmass from the Atlantic to the Ural, from the Norwegian Sea to the Mediterranean. But I think um, in a lot of the conversations that that's around Europe, not only these days, but even if you look back in time, and it's going to continue in the future as well, I guess um, this. It's not necessarily the only thing that people mean when they say Europe. Um, there's, uh, I think, in many aspects, there's uh, another implication there, sort of like a cultural or maybe political idea that's behind it. And um, I think it might be a good idea to to take a step back, like I said, and just reconsider this. So, I mean, we all probably know that the, the term Europe, it stems from Greek antiquity and... Um, so, obviously, how it's used has changed a lot over time. In in ancient times, it was considered one-third of the, the world next to Asia and 
what we call Africa today. Um, but then um, it became through the Roman Empire, it got uh, became like a term for the continent we know today more or less. But even in medieval times, there was a, another aspect to it. Often it was used to to um, differentiate between the, the Christian world or then the Western Christian world as opposed to the Orthodox Christian world from the Islamic world and so on. And if you apply this definition, um, for example, during the 9th or 10th century, when this term started to be used more widely, it was used to apply to to, uh, to areas that, of course, today are in Europe, but it wouldn't apply to some parts that today nobody would doubt are part of Europe. For example, some of, I mean, most of Eastern Europe, for example, and also Southern Iberia, which for centuries was uh, mostly uh, Muslim. So um, I think it's important to, to consider this aspect of the term. Um, and I mean, of course, today, the term Europe doesn't necessarily imply any connection to the Catholic Church or anything like this. I'm not trying to say this, but I do think in a lot of ways there is a at least in the practical use of the term, sometimes there's a undercurrent of of cultural ideas that we associate with the continent of Europe. What is and isn't European, I think, for a lot of people, has an uh, an implicit element to it, don't you think? Um, it's, of course, hard to, to really nail this down. It's not like... Uh, I mean, some people, especially the more, I guess nationalist crowd they have a very strict idea of these cultural ideas they are european and people who don't conform to them they are anti-european or they're like foreign elements in this continent um but i think also in the for example in the discourse surrounding the european union the european union for example is focused a lot on on values european values and so on and this is very explicit in this aspect that there is more to it than just a geographical definition. Um, so also to my background a bit, I when I was thinking how could you intro a program where we're going to talk about Europe a lot, my first idea was, okay, let's just have a very brief look at the history. Um, but that's not really so easy i found out um because if you look at european history it's largely uh just national histories mm. there's no such thing or i mean there is such a thing but it's not really as widespread to have a pan-european history i feel mm. at least not in an explicit sense if you look at the history of europe it always starts with or almost always starts with greek antiquity i mean i did this myself earlier so mm. um and this is sort of where most um, European history sort of um, starts off, I think. But I think that's also because uh, just even the feeling of nationality is something pretty new that people didn't feel that many or like that many hundred years ago. Um, so even just feeling like you belong to a country more than you, for example, belong to a city or something is is fairly new and therefore um, feeling a nationality that kind of in, encompasses the Europe, pan-Europe feeling um, must be very new too I, I guess because it's such a new concept that we also have this idea of feeling um, a kind of um, connection to other countries within Europe just based on the fact that we're close to each other. 
It's true. That's definitely true. Um, but in my mind, I immediately sort of contrasted it with Latin America, for example. I studied a lot of Latin American history. And while, of course, national histories also are important there, I mean, uh, the nation state is no less important in Latin America, I guess, today. But there are more considerations for like the, the common history, at least the post-colonial history of, of Latin America, um, which I think sort of plays into the same aspect you just mentioned that um, uh, Latin America the the idea of nations they are relatively young even compared to the the European idea of nations and so um, they have this sort of common origin in the decolonization process mm. while in Europe I think um, this idea, and you can trace this back, I think, to the to the historic sciences of the last 200 years, that this idea of like looking into history for a lot of people is looking into one's own roots or something like this. There's a strong element to this. And I think you can also see this with starting out with Greek antiquity. It's no accident. I mean, of course, what people always mention is that it's like one of the the origins of Western civilization, which I think is a very abstract term in itself. But um, I think one of the main reasons why people like to start out there is because many European nations, they have a very or relatively explicit connection to, to ancient Greece in that they claim Greece as this um, the the place where democracy originated and the the idea of citizenship, all these things that for us, I think, are very central to, to the identity of most uh, European nations, or at least Western European nations. So I don't want to get us too bogged down in <laughs> historical discussions, but when I looked at the history of Europe, I think there were three elements that I think have a very deep and lasting impact and that can still be felt today. And I think... The three things, one of them we mentioned already is the the nation state. I think the emergence of nation states is something that shaped Europe the way it is today um, a lot. I mean, the discussion on nationalism is all over the place today. Nobody can miss it, basically. But not even the the explicit discussion. Um, it's also in, I think, the, the way we think. And I mentioned it earlier, this is one of the ideas behind this program, is that we try to of course, you can't divorce yourself completely from, from your biases, I guess, but we try to at least make an effort to not have a one country perspective, but sort of try to um, at least have a multi country perspective or um, in the best case scenario, maybe even like uh, a perspective that's um, beyond national perspectives. Um, another aspect that I think and we might be touching on that later on, um, that shaped European history a lot, is the, the concept of empire. Um, all throughout European history, starting with uh, the Roman Empire, of course, but going well into the 20th century, um, both the, the continent and how uh, Europe interacted with the rest of the world, uh, which, of course, we shouldn't forget, um, has been largely through the... Um, yeah, the form of empire. There were many different types of empires, but they a lot. They have a lot of commonalities, I would say, that shaped the. Uh, yes, I would say the the political culture and the the historic 
course of Europe in that it was about expansion, about um, um, putting elements of of your culture all over the, the world in a yeah in a form of, of domination and I think uh, the position that Europe is in today and I hope it's not too controversial to say but um, is largely owed to, to imperialism in a large degree if you look at the role that Europe pl uh, played in the world economy that's just something that uh, historians have discussed a lot and today you can find relatively I think very accurate numbers on Uh, the estimated GDP that different parts of the world had throughout history. And you can see that uh, for the first 1,000 years uh, AD, um, the, the production output of China and India, for example, dominated uh, the world in a relative manner, of course. I mean, the interaction between the continents were a lot less during that time. And then... Um, I, I really recommend to our listeners to to look up numbers on this, the historic world GDPs of different continents. But you can really see a shift there as soon as uh, the the age of colonialism started in the late 15th century and then intensified later on when the British and the French Empire, they started uh, colonizing Africa and Asia. The production um, or the GDP, I mean, you shouldn't necessarily equate the two, but... Of, of Europe just uh, started dominating uh, the world economy. And I use the word dominating because that's literally what Europe did in a very military sense um, or political military sense in the time to many parts of the world. And uh, if you look at its numbers, of course, the Industrial Revolution had a huge impact in this as well. It happened in the later part of the colonial era. But... Um, This is something that I think shaped uh, the world economy we know today. And I mean, our world economic system emerged in this time as well. And this, I mean, I don't want to call it a head start because that sounds very uh, mundane. It's more like this ad advantage that Europe took. This uh, is something that, that really put us in the position we're in today, I think, in, the, in terms of the world economy and um, something we shouldn't necessarily forget. And if you look at countries like uh, France and Britain in particular, but I think you can see similar structures in some other countries, This, while most people don't want a restoration to, of the empire or anything like this, they, of course, disagree with colonialism. But I think there is a lot of this thinking still around, like this, this time when the country was great in, in France. At least I can say this from my personal experience. Maybe you uh, can say something about this, Meline, how you experience this. I mean, you probably know more French people than I do. Um, but even uh, with, um, I have some, some distance family and friends and uh, they are very progressive minded. And when we talk about politics, usually we agree about a lot of the stuff. But then when the topic of uh, intervention abroad comes up, particularly, I think last discussion we had was about Mali, um, the opinions diverge starkly between the, the German side of the family and the French side of the family just because um, for I think in the at least it's my impression that in the progressive understanding in in France it's still more normal this idea that uh, French troops or French uh, foreign aid should have a very active role in um, 
intervening in uh, another place of the world. I don't know if that's accurate. I mean, I think it's especially true when it comes to Africa because we're all so close of them. And until at like the late 70s, we were still in Algeria. Algeria was still part of France. Mm. Um, so we still have very close contact and we kind of feel like we need to save them, which is not true. Um, but we, yeah, have this white complex that they need us and they can't develop without us. So like just recently, uh, one of the ministers went there just to give money and arms. So what because they, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was last week, I think, um, just because they didn't like the fact that Russia was getting too involved mm. uh, with them. Mm. So like, yeah, we're coming back. Don't forget about us. <laughs> and we're, this is just happening like every day. Yeah, that's so. very interesting. Mm. And um, I think I might be overreaching here, but I get the impression that this might be a late consequence of, of the empire, so to speak, this idea of having a role abroad. Um, I mean, of course, it's also, you mentioned it, especially in terms of opposing Russia or something like this, is also just part of geopolitics, I guess, to a certain degree. But the impulse, I think, might might have its, its root in this historic process. So to circle all the way back around, um, I think the last aspect that really shaped European history um, in a fundamental degree is, um, and I mean, you hear this a lot in the discourses on all kinds of nations in Europe and also the European Union, is of course the the Enlightenment idea, the idea of liberal democracy, mm -hmm. something like this. I mentioned it earlier, a lot of countries in Europe like to trace their roots to, to the early democracies of, of Greece and This is something that I feel, especially in the post-Second World War era, is um, hard to to not consider when you consider the, the self-understanding of, of Europe and individual European nations as well, particularly in, in regard to the European Union, which is this explicit, or at least in its self-understanding, explicit democratic project with uh, liberal values. And um, so um, I think... Those are the, the the big trends of, of European history that, um, at least for me, help me when I try to take a step back and look at Europe, what are we talking about here? Those are the three aspects that I think of that shaped Europe and brought it to the point where we are at right now. We still have this element of nation states that's even in the EU era, if you want to call it like this, um, is the defining measure in Europe, all the important decisions are happening on this level, sort of, and even with this idea of the European Union, Europe coming together, it's, I feel like, and I mean, I would like to hear your thoughts on this as well, but for me, at least at this point, when the enthusiasm surrounding the European Union seems to be waning a bit, it seems like it's always been more of nations working together rather than nations becoming one, um, if you know what I'm saying. Mm. Okay, so I think um, that was plenty on, on history for now because uh, we don't want this to be a history podcast, right? So usually we're going to focus on, on new style topics, not necessarily the big current events, but topics that are very... Um, Yeah, in the discussion right now... From everything we said, Eurocentrism looks like a very bad thing. And in my personal opinion, I think it has some horrible um, sides on it. We're here 
telling you that we're gonna make a podcast on Europe. So how can we do that without being this bad Eurocentric uh, journalist that we just criticized? Yeah, that's a <laughs> it's a tough <laughs> one. Um, but I think from the way I understand it, at least, and this might be a bit of a naive perspective, but since Eurocentrism is something that's very based in in discourse and in in the way of thinking, the way you look at things, one of the first things to do definitely is be aware of it, to know what it is, try to recognize the patterns in which it works and not try to, I mean, we mentioned earlier, not try to take everything for granted, not start from an assumption, but sort of try to go to the root of the assumption, right? You look at the world and you don't go back. Of course, Europe's in the center there mm -hmm. and everything else is around, but you sort of try to uh, locate everything for yourself like this, I think. This might be a good start. I mean, it's easier said than done, of course, but uh, we could try to do that. And I mean, I think it's also very important to remember that Europe is just one little spot on the planet and we're very related to everything that goes around because everything has an impact. Even if we don't see it directly, it's going to have an influence. So just try to yeah, keep this in mind. I think that's in, in continuing that point i think we're also gonna um not just solely focus on europe we might take our starting point within europe but we can also relate it to other countries and other places around the world that might have an influence or might be important for this specific topic that we're talking about i mean i don't want this to sound like a hollow phrase or anything but it seems like it's really hard these days to make any substantial news or discussion medium that's just looking at one part of the planet in isolation mm -hmm. just because what's happening in Europe, most of what's happening in Europe, it's not happening in a vacuum. It's going to relate to, um, I mean, to the global economy, to to foreign policy that goes beyond the, the limits of the continent and so on. So I think there's basically no way around it and just to be conscious about it and uh, make it in a deliberate manner might be might be a good move. I think that's true. And, and I think something about these things, it's the same with feminism and everything else that you learn along the way that you we might still make some mistakes because that's the problem with things that you've been taught your entire life. They, they are so deeply rooted within you that it takes a lot of time to become aware of all the places where you do these things. Um, so we will do our best, but I think it's we also have to be aware that we might still make some mistakes and we might still have some roots that are Eurocentric within us because we're all from Europe and that's kind of how it has to be. But we're also doing this to kind of develop and to try and not be Eurocentric, all of us, I think. Yeah, Um I think this might be a, a good spot to take the opportunity to just uh, also ask our viewers if you've got any feedback, if you've got opinions on the program, uh, you'll find us on social media. You can always comment on Twitter and Facebook. And I think uh, for us, I would at least appreciate feedback a lot. If it's critical, if it's positive, I don't care. Um, it's just good to know what, what you guys think about what we're saying. Um, so that's it for today. Uh, thank you so much for being here and uh, listening to us. I hope you'll stick around with us so we can learn. 
And Alvarun has a message from us presenting next week's subject. So thank you for listening to our podcast uh, next week. Tune in again for another podcast. This time the theme is universities across Europe. So what are different university cultures? What do we think about them? What is positive? What is negative about them? And maybe also what would we want to change about it? Next week, Monday, same time, same place.